Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome. Please come and grab a seat and grab your Bible. If you have your Bible, once you found it, go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We will get there momentarily. And we'll read a little bit of scripture and then dive in. But before we do that, um, just tell you a little bit about my social life, which is absolutely rocking at the moment, because last night I was at a party, which was great fun. Um, but if you know anything about me, parties are not my natural environment. They're not something I particularly warm to. And we were at a party last night, which, is, uh, which you had to come dressed up, and you had to go in festival chic. So you had to dress as if you're going for a festival, which, to be honest, for me, was something Melanie got very excited about. I was a little bit more, all right then, I'll see what I can do. And so if you put up the photo, this is um, the, the outcome. Now, you can see myself there. I managed to get a band t-shirt together because that's very festival. And even though that's a band t-shirt from like 30 years ago, it's actually very current because they played at Gap Glastonbury. And I'm the sort of person who likes to go with Adrian, who's on the other side of the photo, and we like to kind of just hang back a little bit. We'll let others get involved. We, we'll show willing, but we have a friend who's the one in the middle. <laughs> and that's Ben, who's part of Alicia. And Ben goes all in. And I don't know if you... Let me just talk you through his ensemble that he was wearing last night. He's got nail polish on. Glittery nail polish. He's got necklaces. He's got face paint. He's got a hat. I don't know where it came from, which is sequined all over. And if you can see right down at the bottom, he's got Banana Man um, socks on, which he said he just found, and he thought they would be appropriate for a festival. I'm not convinced. But he did. He's even got on his arm on the sleeve there the, uh, the fake tattoos as well to kind of just blend in, be down with the kids. And so he, he went all in on the evening. And not only did he go all in on his costume, he was dancing, he was in the mosh pit, he was crowd surfing, jumping off the stage, all those kind of things. He went all in, which was in total contrast to me, who took it a little bit more, I'll stand back and watch and let others do. And what we, what's the relevance of that? What we're going to be looking at today is what it means to go all in on Jesus. And the challenge for us today is, are you going to be someone who's like me, who sits on the edge and watches, or are you going to be like Ben, who goes all in and gives themselves to Jesus and everything he is? So, the part of Mark's gospel we're looking at today, Mark chapter 14, we have got, we've been going through the entire gospel of Mark, and Mark is broken down into three sections. It's got chapters 1 to 8, which is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We've looked at that. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He demonstrates the kingdom of God, healing miracles, beginning of opposition to who he is. Then we have chapters 8, 9, and 10, where Jesus is on the way. And he's on the way to Jerusalem, and he predicts his death and his suffering three times in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. And then the final section, which is chapters 11 to 16, which we have seen, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And you can even break down that last section because the first three chapters, chapters 11, 12, and 13, about the temple. And we've seen Jesus' conflict with the temple. Through that, we've been through that. And now, at the beginning of chapter 14, we've got the last three chapters of Mark's gospel. And it's basically the beginning of the end. 
What we've got now is a series of events that will lead to Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. And so we're just going to read a few verses today. We're going to read it all together because it's not long. So we're going to put the, um, the word should appear on the screen behind us. I will count us in and we're going to read this all out loud together. So are we ready? That, that was less than enthusiastic. Here we go. One, two, three, go. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to portray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, 11 verses there, beginning of chapter 14. Big idea. The right response to Jesus is to give everything to him. The right response to Jesus is to give everything for him. What we've got in this section here in Mark is another one of Mark's sandwiches, which we have seen multiple times in the gospel where there is one story that is then split with another story in the middle, like a sandwich, two pieces of bread and a filling. And what we have is we have a plot to murder Jesus through the betrayal of Jesus. And in the middle, there is a story of a woman who anoints Jesus' body for burial. So we're going to go through the passage. As we go through some passages, there's some themes I just want you to think about as, the, as they come up. Mark them down. Take them in your notes. One of the themes is money. Look up that. Where does that come out? Who uses it and how? There's the insider-outsider theme, which we've seen multiple times in Mark, where we, those who are on the inside, who you think should know about Jesus, should know about the kingdom, actually aren't. And there are those on the outside who shouldn't know Jesus, who should be outside of God's kingdom, and actually their roles are reversed in the kingdom of God. And those who think they're on the inside end up on the outside, and those who are on the outside end up on the inside. We have more allusions to Jesus' coming death 
in this passage, and we also have the human response of how do man and woman respond to Jesus and who he is. So, let's go through the passage. First part, the plot to kill Jesus, verses 1 and 2. Chapters 11, 12, 13 of the narrative in Mark's gospel has all been about the temple and the destruction of the temple, and Jesus comments on that. We now move. There's a new section, and Mark mentions two feasts, and he says two days before. So he's giving a time anchor there in the narrative, and this would be work out of the Wednesday of the Passion Week, last, last week of Jesus' life. So we've got the Wednesday, because it's two days before the Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now a little bit about those feasts. The first one, the Passover, Exodus chapter 11. When you go back there and you have Moses and you have the famous story of the ten plagues of Egypt and then the final plague was when the death of the firstborn because Pharaoh would not let God's people go despite the command from God saying release my people from captivity and he sent the plagues and Pharaoh hardened his heart and then he got the final one. And God spoke to his people through Moses and said, the way you can avoid the consequence of this, my judgment that's coming on the whole land is to kill a lamb Put its blood on the doorpost and I will pass over that house that has that. And I won't strike down the firstborn because the lamb will be the substitute. That was a feast that had been celebrated by Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was a reminder of God's deliverance from slavery and bringing them out um, of Egypt into freedom to be his people. Then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began immediately after the Passover. The Passover happened on one day, and then you had a week-long festival after called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a reminder for Israel that when they had to flee Egypt in haste, they didn't have time to hang around and wait for the bread to rise, the dough to rise, so the bread was unleavened, flatbread. And so it was a reminder for them that they had got to deliver them and they had to eat unleavened bread um, and it was celebrating God's provision for them because when they left Egypt, God provided for them because they got to plunder the Egyptian and take the 400 years worth of wages they hadn't been paid as slaves and they got to go out, be God's people under God's provision of freedom and provision. And at that time in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would flood to Jerusalem because that was the place where you celebrate the Passover. And so they would have been there. And what we've got is this time of great celebration, great remembrance of all, all God had done. And we have the people who are getting ready for that. Worshippers would have been coming into the city. And what are the religious leaders doing? They're plotting to kill Jesus. So at a time of preparation and a time of celebration and remembering of what God has done, the chief priests and the leaders, which represent the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and we've met a lot over the last few chapters, they are all about plotting to kill Jesus. Rather than celebrating as God coming back to his people to lead them into freedom from slavery from sin, they're all about trying to kill him. And the language Mark used is, it just kind of sums up their actions, their plotting. It says they are seeking, which means they're trying to gain power and control over Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to seize him. They want to grab him and repress him. They want to use stealth, which is guile and deception, to do it. And ultimately, their cold objective of the plot is to kill him. That is their, it is a murder plot that they are hatching. And what Mark's doing here is subtly linking the death of Jesus with the death of the lamb, which will happen at the Passover, all foreshadowing what is going to come. 
And there is a sense of haste about what they're doing because they want to get it done before all the worshippers turn up and the, the festivities get into full flow of all these massive crowds who would have heard of Jesus and heard of his miracles and known about him. They said, let's get this done quickly. They wanted to avoid um, uh, an uproar and things going on. So they've got this plan. Little do they know that their actions are playing into the hands of God's sovereign plan, but that's what's happening. And then the, the scene immediately changes to verses 3 to 9, where we have the worship of Jesus. So we've got a contrast. We've got the plot. Let's try and kill him. And then Mark immediately moves the narrative elsewhere about the worship of Jesus. And we have a story of an unnamed woman who comes to Jesus, which is in direct contrast with the plotters who we've just heard who want to kill him. Uh, the woman is named elsewhere in the uh, New Testament, if you go and read other gospel accounts, but Mark doesn't name her because the, he wants to focus on her actions, not on who she is, on her tenderness and compassion that she shows to the Savior as opposed to the treachery and the ruthlessness of the plotters. So we have the action. It says, while at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper. So we've moved from Jerusalem, the religious center. If you want to be in with the the people of God and the worship of God, that's where you go, Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where the leaders are. To Bethany, which is outside of the city. Because we know Jesus has left the temple because he's seen its corrupt nature. And so the Lord has moved from there. He's gone to the house of Simon the leper. Now, no one knows anything about Simon the leper. This is his only mention. In our Bible, what we can surmise pretty confidently that he wasn't a leper anymore or else he wouldn't be having this gathering. It just, it just wouldn't have worked like that. So we think he's the ex-leper, probably healed by Jesus. That's likely. And so that's his house. But he's another outsider. But where do we find the Lord? In his house, in Bethany, not in Jerusalem. And so they're there and there's a gathering of people there um, probably been the Jewish men, and then into it comes another outsider, a woman. Now, it was a social faux pas for a woman to enter a gathering of Jewish men, I can't believe I'm going to say this, unless she was serving food. That's what it said in the commentary, I'm just saying. And so, that's what happened. So she comes in to the situation as an outsider. Jesus, interestingly, doesn't seem to be bothered by this. She comes in. Jesus doesn't seem to worry about interruptions. If you go back to Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood, what does she do? She comes and interrupts Jesus while he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Jesus commends her faith. And she arrives bearing a jar of perfume, of nard, which is the extract of oil from the root of an Indian herb. So it was an import And it was incredibly expensive, and it's unlikely that this one would have had the money to buy it. So they think it was probably some sort of heirloom, something that might have been handed down from the family that was just this this asset they had that was incredibly expensive. So it probably not only had a monetary value, but also a sentimental value. And it says, she came to Jesus, and it says she took this expensive gift, and she broke it she broke it which means it can never be used again because the flask they had some kind of clay jar pot thing when it's broken that's it you've got to use it all you've got to use it up and so she has given everything to Jesus something that can never be used again she has fully and completely given over 
to Jesus. And she pours the perfume on his head, head which would have been a public action. It, you couldn't have missed it, because once she'd have come into the room, you'd have seen her. She broke the jar, and the smell would have filled where they were. It's something that could not be missed. And so she was someone who was coming to the Lord and pouring out her gift, pouring out her offering, quite literally, before him and on him. And so then we have a response. It says there were some of those who were there. We don't know who. It says they, they are unnamed. But whoever they were, it says they said to themselves indignantly, out of anger or annoyance, why was this perfume, this ointment she had, waste, wasted? That's the word they use. It's a waste to pour out before Jesus. Why did they do that? Because you could have sold it for 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. So it really was expensive. And they said, well, you could have sold that. And it says you could have um, given it to the poor, which is... Didn't they say we were going to do it? It's a theoretical action. But they're saying that's what could have happened. So their anger, their, their response is anger and annoyance. And they take offense at the extravagance of her gift and her worship to Jesus. So she comes and gives Jesus everything, something huge. And their response is anger and annoyance. And what they're saying there is they are demeaning her and her gift by making these comments wasn't worth it you shouldn't have done it but what they're also doing is they're demeaning someone else they're demeaning Jesus you're not worth it the woman has seen something about Jesus and she's given something to Jesus and the guests there those who are observing this those who are reacting out of anger and annoyance is they are demeaning her and they're demeaning Jesus, basically saying her extravagance and all that she's given to you and her worship, you're not worth it, Jesus. She shouldn't have done that. She's seen something. She's come into the room where maybe she shouldn't have been and there are all these other people crowded around Jesus and she's the one who gives him everything. And it says they scolded her, which means they rebuked her. They told her off. They gave her a talking to, a dressing down. But then we get Jesus' response, verses 6 to 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? He speaks to defend her actions, and he uses this phrase to describe what she's done. They're cross. It's a waste. Why have you done this? He says, she has done a beautiful thing. Her worship of Jesus, when Jesus looks at it, says it's beautiful. And he's seen her sacrifice, and he commends it. And he's done this, if you remember, just at the end of chapter 12, when he sat and he watched the offering. And there was a widow who went and put a few coins in the offering, and there were lots of wealthy people who put lots of money in the offering. And he pointed out the widow and said, she has given everything. She's the one who commends. It's not about the size of the gift per se. It's about the level of sacrifice. And the widow 
had given something small, but it was a huge sacrifice. And this unnamed lady had given something big, but that was also a sacrifice. And he judges her motives and he finds it commendable. And he says, this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. And he comments on their thing uh, about their, their thing about the poor. He, he confronts that um, and actually shows the kind of almost uh, the, 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 the wrongness of their thinking. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that you shouldn't look after the poor. The New, Tes- uh, the New Testament, Old Testament, full of um, sort of exhortations to deal with that. Israel themselves have been a slave nation. That's what the Passover was about them being free from slavery. They were poor. They were downtrodden. He's not saying that. What he's reminding them which they fail to see, is that he is the ultimate. He's the priority. He's the most important one. And the woman had seen it, and they hadn't. Jesus was just living out the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this woman had seen it, and she'd done it. And you see all those people standing around who... Jesus had talked to his disciples who would have been in the room, and he'd said three times, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And there's no record in the Gospels of them responding to that or doing anything about it. It takes this woman to come and anoint his body for burial. She's seen something. She's heard something. She knows where Jesus is going. She knows what's going to happen, and she's responding to that in worship. And she anoints his body ready for his coming death and ready for his burial. She's seen that the good news advances through suffering through Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death on the cross. And then Jesus makes this staggering statement in verse 9, where he begins, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel, the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in the memory of her. And we are now evidence of Jesus' words. That in a place 2,000 years hence, 2,000 miles away, we're proclaiming her actions. And so what Jesus said has come to pass. She's still being shown, this woman, that her actions, her worship has lived throughout the centuries. And the reality is, here's a, here's a thing to write down. Everyone around here wants to be remembered. They want to be seen. They want to be known. Instagram likes and Facebooks. And people want to have their public, yeah, I want to be seen. I want people looking at me. Well, according to Jesus, how do you How are you remembered best? By giving everything to him. Because that woman gave everything to him. And Jesus said, she's going to be remembered forever. She's going to be marked in my word. And heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus says, "My, my words won't. What I've got in the Bible, and it's still here. We're still living it. So there's that woman giving everything to Jesus. And in the final part of the sandwich, we go back to the first story, the betrayal of Jesus. So... We've got the plot to kill Jesus. We've got the response of the woman to worship Jesus. And then we go back to the betrayal of Jesus. And it's this plot. And despite what this woman has done and what she's demonstrated, Judas would have been one of the 12. He was there. And Mark identifies him. He's one of Jesus' closest kind of associates, one of his friends, one of his team. He's right there in the middle of it. And again, we're reminded that proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean faith in Jesus. And Judas, who is one of the 12, he has shown to actively choose to go and betray Jesus. It says he went 
showing willful and deliberate action to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. So we've got the woman who deliberately, willfully came to Jesus to give him everything and worship him. And then Jesus, one of Jesus' closest followers, deliberately, willfully chose to leave Jesus and go and betray him. Two responses there. And he goes to the chief priests. There's no particular reason given in this one. We do know from John's gospel that Judas was a thief and he was the holder of the money back and he used to help himself to that. And there's money again mentioned here. You betray them for money. It's right there. And, but Judas is shown as being solely responsible for his actions. Rather than seeking to honor and worship Jesus, like the woman he chose to betray Jesus and profit from him. The woman chose to give, Judas chose to take. And what does the response of the religious leaders, one of the most kind of tragic lines we have here, it says, and when they heard it, Jesus, of Judas saying, I'll betray Jesus, they were glad. Yes, They weren't glad that Jesus had come, that God had returned to his people, God had returned to his temple. He was here, Emmanuel, God with us. They weren't glad of that. They weren't glad of the coming celebrations, remembering God's deliverance from the people, uh, from slavery in Egypt. They were glad because they get to kill Jesus. They were rejoicing knowing they were going to kill God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And what we have when we stand back as we have the sovereign hand of God working here in the plans of men who seek to betray Jesus, kill Jesus. But in the middle of that, we have the worship of Jesus being poured out by this woman. A reminder that the gospel only advances through suffering and death. And Jesus is the one who leads the way on that. To be reminded that proximity to Jesus, proximity to his people doesn't necessarily equal faith. And actually, it's a personal decision we make and then continue to make. And we're reminded that the right response to Jesus is one of worship and giving our all to him. Let's have a few bits of application, and then we too are going to respond to Jesus. Three things I think we should learn out of this. First one, plans of evil men cannot stop the purposes of God. The plans of evil men cannot stop the purposes of God. Jesus came with a very specific purpose, to save his people from their sins. And through that, we see God using circumstances, the intentions of men's hearts for his glory and for his purposes to be worked out. They thought they'd done it. They'd got it. They'd got their inside man. They'd got their traitor. We can finally get rid of Jesus. We can finally stop this threat. But in the plan of God, Jesus Uh, was coming and fulfilling the Father's purposes, and it was all being worked out according to the plan. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in our place for our sin. He rose bodily from death. He ascended into heaven, and he calls men and women to repent of their sin and to follow him. And it is something that has been worked out throughout church history, not just as we see in the life of Jesus. We then read in the book of Acts, God's plans and purposes are being worked out even through persecution and the dispersal of the church and suffering and even martyrdom of some of his saints. God's plans and purposes are still being worked out and the church is still growing and still multiplying throughout the world today. 
larger than it's ever been, and it is still growing. And we as believers are to take hope of this. We are to say, actually, whatever it looks like out there, whatever we read, whatever the way the cultural winds are blowing, whatever way the kind of the narrative of our nation is, whatever they say about the church, whatever they say about God, whatever they say about Jesus and where he stands and who he is, we know that God's plans and purposes will prevail because men and women with evil intent cannot stop them. And not only that, God will take their evil intent and evil actions and use them for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And we see it in the life of Jesus and we see it multiplied and carried on throughout the church. And so as men and women of God, we are to rejoice in that. No matter what it says, no matter what happens, we know what will happen in the end. And we know everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, then it's not the end. And we are to keep going and keep serving. And if you're not a believer here and you don't know Jesus, you need to repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in him. You need to make the choice, like the woman in the story, to give your all to Jesus, to trust him, to put your faith, put your heart, put your life in him. The second thing, following Jesus means being misunderstood. If you are a believer here and you are called to follow Jesus and live out your life daily in accordance with his will, you are going to be misunderstood, just like the woman. She came and she worshipped at his feet. She did a beautiful thing, Jesus said. He commended her. But then there were people around her, and we know from other stories, some of them were the disciples, and they, what's she doing? Why is she doing that? That's not a good use of resources. That's not a wise thing to do. And so as you choose to follow Jesus, you will be misunderstood. As you choose to step out in faith, as you choose to put your trust in him, as you choose to give to him, as you choose to give your time and your energy and your money to his kingdom purposes, there will be those around you who will question you. There will be a world around you who will say, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. It's not a good idea. They'll say, shut up and sit down when you are to stand up and cry out. And you will be misunderstood. It's part of being part of God's people. It's the lot we have. We read through the book of Acts again and again. They're accused of all sorts of things, misunderstood in all sorts of things, told all sorts of things. But we are to look at this woman and we are still to give Jesus our best. We are still to give everything we have for him, knowing that he's the only one we are doing it for. We do it for an audience of one. And that's our priority, that's our purpose. And we think about that woman where she came into that environment and she only had eyes for one person, Jesus. And she was going to come and she was going to worship him no matter what happened about her. And so we have got to be prepared for that and to keep going in that. And the final one, faithful acts of worship receive the commendation of Jesus. The faithful acts of worship receive the commendation of Jesus. Jesus said it was a beautiful thing. And that's something that's a, a theme that is echoed throughout Scripture, even from the words of Jesus when he says, 
in Matthew 25, when he says, and when you, and when did, uh, they, so the people said to Jesus, and when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you, and when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus, as you serve faithfully, as you pour yourself out on behalf of others in his name, Jesus sees it and he knows it. He goes straight on after that section when he tells the parable of the talents. And they were given different amounts and they were told to use them by the master and invest them and multiply them. And the first two did and the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. When we give it all to Jesus and we pour ourselves out of him, he sees. He notices. He's the one looking. He sees your actions and commends it, even if no one else sees He sees things done out of a faithful heart and in desire to see his kingdom come, and he commends it. When you give your best to Jesus, it is not wasted, it is not overlooked, it is not ignored. On the the other side, it actually captures the attention of the King of Kings. He notices and he sees, and he says, I like that. No act of service, no act of compassion, no act of sacrifice or worship is ever missed by Jesus. He sees it all. And when you faithfully serve in your workplace and you are honest with clients and you show integrity there when you are tempted to fiddle the numbers, tell them half truths because that's what your colleagues are doing and you don't want to get left behind, he sees the integrity in your life. When you are trying to live with holiness in an environment where others aren't. Jesus sees your commitment and your act of worship. When you are overlooked for promotions and advancement because you will not do those things, he sees it. When you faithfully serve children in your home and you're on your own and you're doing it again and again just to love and serve them because you want to see them grow up to be godly men and women, he sees it when you serve the poor, the broken, the vulnerable, the outsider. When you welcome in the stranger, he sees you doing it, and he commends you for it. And he says to you, keep going, faithful servant. And if no one else acknowledges and no one else sees it, Jesus does. And he says it's a beautiful, beautiful thing we as men and women of God are to serve for the audience of one and to give ourselves all for him we're to be men and women who repent of our sins put our faith and trust in him and then live a life full of the spirit where we hear his voice and we respond and we give ourselves to him and we give ourselves in acts of sacrifice again and again and again amen stand up I would love to pray for you and we're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to give ourselves to him. I'd love to pray for you, so maybe you want to close your eyes. Open out your hands. I just feel this sense that there are some of you here now today where you're You're in that process, you're in that 
fight, in that battle, that eternal struggle where am I going to do this? Am I going to give myself to that? Am I going to go all in? Am I going to push myself and say, yeah, I will just sacrifice for you, Jesus? It might be a work situation where you've got to say something or not do something or not go along with others. It might be a family situation. It might be a ministry opportunity. I just don't know. But I know there's a a sense of God saying, are you going to be like the woman who just comes and worships at my feet? Who comes and gives me everything? And I'd love to pray for you now that you make a response now, but actually it will be outworked in your actions kind of this week and whatever God's put on your heart. And so Holy Spirit of God, I pray you'd come fill us afresh by your Spirit. Lord, we need you. We cannot do this without you. Struck again at the book of Acts that they did so many incredible things and suffered so much, but they did it all in the power of the Spirit. They needed God, the Holy Spirit, with them to do it. They needed God, the Holy Spirit, to see the kingdom come. They couldn't do it alone. And so I pray for us now, Lord, that you would come by your Spirit, fill us fresh, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be like that woman, that we would come and we would kneel before you and we'd give you everything. We would give you everything. The areas of our life that are being held back for our own fears, our own insecurities, our own selfishness, we would give it to you. For some of you, it's stepping out in ministry. Some of you, it's stepping out just work, family situations, speaking into them. Some of you, it's financial and actually giving your finances. Well, this woman gave a year's wages in one hit. I'm not suggesting you do that. But there's a financial call on us as disciples of Jesus to give to his kingdom. Give well, give sacrificially, not just a token. Some of it's that. Some of it's speaking. Some of it's acting. Some of it's doing. Some of it's starting. Some of it's stopping certain things. But I just want, I'm going to pray for me and I'd love you to pray for you and then we can sing. Lord God, I see that woman in that story and I am convicted to get afresh of what it means to follow you. I see her and her example and I'm undone of what it means to be a worshipper of you, of someone who will pour out everything before you, someone who sees you as the one who is to suffer and die. Lord God, and I ask for me, I ask you give me grace to be like her who will give everything to you, who will kneel before you, who will cry out to you, who will sacrifice for you, not live on the past sacrifices that have happened in life, but fresh new ones as we move forward as your people. Lord God, I recognize I need your help for that. I need your spirit in me. I need your heart on me, Lord God. I ask you to give me grace to walk in your ways and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom wherever I go in word and action that you may be glorified that you may be honored God's people said